church family, every Easter season, we commit ourselves to praying for and giving to uh, what is known in Southern Baptist life as the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering. For those of you uh, that may be unfamiliar, unfamiliar with this, Annie Armstrong uh, lived uh, decades ago and pioneered raising money from Southern Baptist churches uh, to do ministry here in North America, and we continue on uh, that effort. Uh, you can give to the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering in a couple of ways. You can give directly to it. Mark it on the envelope in the pew there. You can give to it online. If you already give to the Pray, Send, Go Missions offering, which we uh, take up annually here just kind of throughout the year, you're already giving to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering because a portion of that off of the Pray, Send, Go offering uh, we forward on to the North American Mission Board, which is our church planting and North American mission sending agency of the Southern Baptist Convention. One of the things that I love about our support of the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board at Christmas time uh, is that we are a part of something much bigger than ourselves. We work together to plant churches. We work together to send missionaries from our church, but we also do that on a much grander scale uh, with other churches across uh, North America through these two offerings. We will not know where this money goes, but we know that it will be used to proclaim the gospel in in places that need churches, uh, that it will support churches, maybe speaking different languages than us, uh, maybe uh, in cities that we will never visit, but we can trust that it is used uh, for gospel purposes because of our cooperative effort together. So I would encourage you to give to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering and to spend this week praying for church planters and missionaries from the North American Mission Board. There's a prayer guide for this at the information desk. You can grab after the service today uh, and our social media platforms will have uh, prayer uh, specific things to pray for every day this week. I'll invite you now to turn in your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 14. This morning we will consider the first 11 verses, and I'll ask you to stand with me now as we honor the reading of God's Word together. I encourage you, I'm sure you do this week in and week out. I hope you listen to the text as I read it. I would encourage you to do so today because I will be taking this text out of order in my uh, exposition of the text for us. And so just kind of pay attention to what's going on because we're going to take these verses out of order uh, in our main points this morning. This is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1 of Mark 14. It was now two days before the Passover... And the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of Uh, ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done A beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whatever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. 
She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the gathered body of saints here in this place, for the fellowship that we have, for the unity that we share in the gospel of Jesus Christ, for our opportunity to worship you and to study your word together as a church. Father, help us to never take that opportunity for granted. We thank you, God, that through the generous gifts of this church and many like ours, there will be gathered bodies of Christians over the coming months and years that are planted in places that we will never go, with pastors and elders that we will never meet, with congregants that we will never know, but that we can trust our gospel representatives in their communities. because you are working through them. Thank you, God, for our partnership with the North American Mission Board and what you're doing there. We now pray, God, that you would help us as we come now to your word. Let us examine our hearts. and Let us emulate as Jesus has told us we would in her memory. This woman gives all to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Maybe seated. This morning's sermon is entitled Treachery and Love. I, we are intentionally now, again, slowing down as we did in chapter 12 after last week's marathon sermon through all of chapter 13. Hope you recovered from that. We will slow down and take four weeks to work through chapter 14. Chapter 14 focuses on a central theme, the abandonment of Jesus by all of his followers. It begins here with a plot that we will unpack and and the treachery of the heart of one of his disciples, Judas. Ultimately, by the end of chapter 14, Jesus is alone, having been betrayed, deserted, and denied. There is a lot of weight to Mark chapter 14 as Jesus walks through this final day and evening before going to the cross. Next week, we'll see the institutional Lord's Supper and we will come to the table together next Sunday morning, Lord willing. But woven throughout all of these stories of Mark 14 is this just regular reminder that those who followed Jesus during his ministry, during this moment, all leave him. And yet Mark 14 begins with what we have grown accustomed to seeing. We see probably eight or nine times throughout the gospel of Mark. And that's what scholars call the Markin sandwich. It's a literary device where Mark takes an idea, divides it into two parts, 
and sandwiches something seemingly different in the middle of it, where the two pieces of bread then, the top and the bottom, as we will see here in verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11, serve kind of as the bread, they're meant to be interpreted by what is in the middle. We'll see another one of these next week, actually. We saw one several weeks ago in uh, Luke chapter 11, where Jesus curses the fig tree and then gives the message of the fig tree with him clearing the temple, kind of sandwiched in the middle. And what happens in the middle tells us what those two beginning and end stories are about. Well, that, that's what we're going to see here. While there is much weight in chapter 14, it begins with a beautiful story sandwiched in between great treachery, showing us the heart of the wicked compared with the heart of the faithful. Our main idea today is that true discipleship is marked by love and adoration for Jesus. True discipleship, not the kind of false religion that was represented by the Sanhedrin in the first two verses or the false discipleship of Judas represented in the last two verses the last two verses but true discipleship represented in what Mark tells us is an unnamed woman although we will name her because other gospels do she represents true discipleship and her discipleship is marked by a great love and adoration, giving all to praise Jesus. But we will start with the treachery of man's sinful heart. And what I want us to do is actually look at the first two verses and then the last two verses and then even the middle section of the story that happens in this house in Bethany, which reveals to us the treacherous heart of man who is not following Jesus. Look at that first brief account in the first two verses. Mark gives us now another reference to the timing of these events. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people so after having confronted Jesus numerous times in the early parts of the week, this last week of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem, uh, the Sanhedrin, the ruling elite, kind of one at a time, and we took our time going through this in Mark 11 and Mark 12, they all come to Jesus trying to trip him, they all come to Jesus trying to fool him, and, and none of them succeed. And, and as Jesus continues to answer their questions well, the crowd continues to follow him the crowd continues to embrace him and now for the final time Jesus removes himself out of the temple goes up to the temple mount sits down just with his disciples and teaches them about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age and then we get to the next day this is this is Mark tells us two days before the Passover now the Passover would have been observed on Thursday evening, and by Jewish reckoning, a new day would begin, it was, was sundown to sundown, not as we would say midnight to midnight. So it's, it's a little different. This is this, this um, scheme that the 
that the Sanhedrin, the high priests and the scribes, this scheme that they're hatching is happening the day before that. So when it says two days, it's that day and then the next day. So this is happening on Wednesday after Jesus has confronted them or after they have sought to confront Jesus and he has answered their questions well in all cases. Now they've gathered together and what do we see them do? They're going to seek to arrest him. But they're going to seek to arrest him, verse, Mark tells us in verse 1, by stealth because they are fearing an uproar of the people. They're fearing an uproar of the people because Jerusalem has swollen now during this, during this Passover week to maybe as much as four times its normal occupancy. There are now hundreds of thousands of people cramming into every nook and cranny of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Everyone has come now to Jerusalem, and the people like Jesus. Now, why have they come? It's an important question for us in the context of what's happening in Mark 14 for me to just quickly address why they've come, and I'm going to remind you of this next week. I'm actually doing it this week, so I can just remind you next week when we're getting to Jesus actually celebrating the Passover. Well, they've been commanded by God to do this. So let's just look at where God has commanded them to do this quickly in Deuteronomy 16. He says to them, observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God for the flock of the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. There are actually two separate feasts at play here that are really combined into uh, and into a unit. One is the celebration of the Passover, which would have begun on, in, in this week of ministry for Jesus on that Thursday evening. And during that day, they were supposed to sacrifice, right? Make a sacrifice, take it back. And when night comes, they're supposed to eat that sacrifice with no unleavened bread. And then the following week is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where they're, not, where they're supposed to rid all of the leaven out of their homes, and only eat that which has not been leavened. And this is to remember both the Passover that the, that the Lord passed over during, the, uh, during their time in Egypt, passed over the homes of the faithful, taking only the firstborn of the Egyptians, and then their flight out of Egypt. And for centuries, the Jewish people had observed this and Jesus has now come to Jerusalem to observe this and so this would be a great time of preparation everybody's ridding their homes of leaven all of the inns are full there are people everywhere and it is during this time that the Sanhedrin has finally had enough they say we've got to do something about this but we can't do it during the feast 
So it seems as if their plot is going to be to, to wait a little while. That subterfuge really was their only option because Jesus had grown so popular with the crowd. But as we'll see in, in the last two verses of this section, this plan changes because a golden opportunity presents itself. Let's look at the opportunity. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, Jesus had 12 disciples that he called towards the beginning of his ministry in Galilee, one of them being Judas. He was one of the 12 went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So while we see it, the, kind of this opening section, the plot of the high priest and the Sanhedrin to, to arrest Jesus kind of with subterfuge, right? They're, they don't want to make a big deal about it, but they still want to be rid of him because he's challenging their position and their power and their authority. And so they're going to try to take Jesus out. Like, we've really got to be careful because the crowd has all come into Jerusalem. And by the way, remember, these are the people that are in power, closely tied to Rome. And the last thing they want is a rebellion because they made a lot of money by peace. They're their relationship with Rome was such that they get to keep ruling over the religious things as long as there was peace. And so they want peace, but they also want to be rid of Jesus. And so they're going to wait until after the feast. And then one comes to them and says, I can take care of this for you. I can betray him. And they promise him money. And he begins to look for an opportunity. And it would only be one day later that Judas seizes this opportunity. We need to look now at why does Judas do this? He's followed Jesus for quite some time. He's been with him now for a number of years, maybe three, two, two to three years that Judas has been a part of Jesus' ministry. He's been following us. But the gospel authors give us reason for Judas's betrayal. Many people have sought to make excuses for Judas. I've read people that have said, well, Judas was really just trying to force Jesus's hand. Maybe he was a closet zealot and what he wanted really was to reestablish the throne of David in Jerusalem and he got tired of waiting and so it wasn't really betrayal. But if we read what the gospel authors actually tell us, we shouldn't make excuses for the actions of Judas. For instance, in the gospel of Luke, Luke records for us in chapter 22, verse 3, Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. So th this isn't just some kind of, you know, ingenious plot of Judas to force Jesus' hand. He's doing this at the direction of Satan. All right? John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus says this to those he plots with. He's saying this to Pharisees. They're part of the group of people that Judas is plotting with. He says, you are your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and, a, and the father of lies. You see, Judas is not alone in following Satan. He's not alone in following the enemy. Those who are in this world who aren't disciples of Jesus, they follow the ruler of the world. This is who the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, the scribes, they weren't following the true God. They were, had become corrupted by their own power. They had become corrupted by their own position 
They had, come, had become corrupted by their ability to control the people. And so Judas, following the same master that the Sanhedrin followed, is now with treachery in his heart going to seek to betray Jesus. Now this isn't in your notes. Why don't you write down 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, because I want to draw a, a quick point of application for you. There Paul writes, there were some... There, Paul writes in verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So let me just make the broader point here. Because this whole first section is about the treachery of man's heart. And the treachery of man's heart uh, is exists because, number one, we have a sin nature, and then that sin nature has us follow the ways of this world, who Paul calls Satan the god of this world. Now, that's a little g god. It's not like he's some sort of yin and yang, exact opposite of the one true god. No, he, he's not a real god, but in a ruling sense, he rules this world through deception and power and speaking greed and treachery into man's hearts. And this is what he's done with the rulers of Israel in Jesus' day. This is what he's done with Judas. And this is what he does in our day. There is still a real enemy of God's people. There is still a real enemy of truth and light in this world. And he is still at work deceiving the world. And maybe you're sitting in here today outside of a relationship with Christ. Hear this. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 is about you. You have been blinded by the enemy of this world. He is your ruler. And it is only by the light of the gospel of Jesus that we find freedom from that. The Sanhedrin had the opportunity to find freedom and they rejected it for power. Judas had the opportunity to find that freedom day in and day out in the teachings of Jesus, and he rejected it for a small bag of coins. And many in our world still hear the gospel and reject it because they're blind to the truth of the gospel and are following the God of this world with treachery in their hearts. So this isn't just a sermon about the treachery of some people in the first century. It is a call to recognize that all of us are born with sinful hearts, with treachery in our minds that stand against God unless we respond to his gospel, believing unto salvation. Now, go to Bethany. I'm going to explain the story in Bethany for us, really by starting in the middle and working out. But let me just tell the story. The, the, the story in Bethany is that Jesus is there and, and quickly because um, Luke places this again, I'm not Luke, sorry, Mark places this in the midst of these two treacherous events, right? The treachery of the Sanhedrin and the treachery of Judas. And he is said that that plot began two days before, right? That this is, that this is on Wednesday that this, that this plot is taking place. John, who also records this event, both Matthew and John record this event in Bethany, and John specifically dates this to six days before, meaning he's dating it to Saturday. 
And normally when we read the synoptic gospels and there's a date, there's a, a specific time frame in either Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and then we read the same thing in John and they don't necessarily agree, by the way, it doesn't mean that one of them's wrong and one of them's right. They're using another literary device that that we don't always understand. And that's moving a chronological event because storytelling back then was more about the point than it was about the chronology. We love chronology. We love knowing what happened next and what happened next. And you can even go out and buy like chronological Bibles that will take all of this and put it into place. But to do that actually misses the point that the gospel authors are trying to make. And normally the synoptic Gospels are the ones that get the chronology correct, and John is the one flipping a whole bunch of stuff around. In this case, it's Mark flipping things around. John is most likely correct that this event doesn't happen on Wednesday, that this event happens on Saturday, but Mark takes it from Saturday and places it where he does in the midst of that treachery to form his sandwich and to make a point. And even in the midst of that story, where this unnamed woman in Mark comes and anoints Jesus with some very expensive perfume, and then Jesus commends her at the end. Even in the midst of that, it's almost like a Big Mac, right? You got bread, bread, and then, oh, surprise piece of bread in the middle. Look at the surprise piece of bread in the middle. Look at how they, some, react to what the woman does. There were some who said, this is starting in verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, everybody goes unnamed in Mark's account. This is not true in John's account. In John's account, we're told who it is that is doing the anointing. It's Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, whom Jesus spends a lot of time with. And we're also told who in the crowd by John actually became indignant. Look at John 12. Same account, right? But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about, who, he, who, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So John helps us here and places the blame directly on Judas. While Mark has everyone go unnamed because the, the focus is on the actual act of this woman if we're looking first at the treachery of man's heart, let's just take into account what John says. That Judas, who's represented in Mark by these, these kind of unnamed detractors who are like, why would she do this? Judas is giving even, John gives us even more insight into Judas's treacherous heart because his goal was not to give the money to the poor. His goal was to actually steal the money, which tells us a lot about Judas. He's stealing money from the money bag. He's willing to steal this money from this woman. And eventually he will take money from the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus because of his treacherous heart. And this was an expensive offering. 300 denarii, they, they, they 
approximate, right? In the text, they approximate the, well, the worth of this uh, ointment that is poured over Jesus. 300 denarii. This is a year's wage. Imagine saving up money for an entire year, buying some perfume with it, and then pouring it all out at once. That's what this woman does. Because of the treachery of man's heart, even that good offering is criticized. And this is what the world does. This is what those who follow Satan in the world do. They criticize even that which is good. Even that which Jesus is going to call good and say will last until the gospel is proclaimed to all nations. The world will criticize and pick apart and say, why would you do it this way? Why, why wouldn't you sell this? And, and there's always this lofty side of the criticism, right? Why wouldn't you sell this and, and give it to the poor? It doesn't matter what they would have done with the money. They would have still been, Judas would have still been critical because he completely misunderstands the heart that the woman has because his heart is still far from God and full of sin and greed and treachery just like those in the beginning of the story, verses one and two. But there's a beautiful picture here, sandwiched in between so much treachery that shows us the love that is demonstrated by a redeemed heart. Look at verse three. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman, this is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Every other, every other portrayal of Mary of Bethany in the scripture is one that shows us at the feet of Jesus, shows her at the feet of Jesus. For instance, in Luke chapter 10, probably the most famous story of Mary and Martha where one is in the kitchen and one is sitting at the feet of Jesus. We read in verse 39 of that chapter and she had a sister called Mary, this is, she is Martha there who was in the kitchen who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. The end of that we read, but one, Jesus says, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which, be, which will not be taken away from her. It was good that Mary was at the feet of Jesus. In John 11, when Lazarus dies and Jesus comes there to Bethany, we read this in verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. That place she had been learning at the feet of Jesus, now in her grief, she falls at the feet of Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In John's account of Mary anointing Jesus with this ointment, John writes in John 12, 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So here's the posture that we have of this woman that comes to anoint Jesus. She is rightfully at his feet. She's willing to submit herself to the teaching of Jesus. She's willing to humble herself before her God. She understands because of a redeemed heart who Jesus is. She's at his feet. It, it's abnormal, by the way. Not only her breaking open a year's worth of, of ointment and pouring it over Jesus, but, but the entire act is abnormal. It, it would have been considered a faux pas, 
for a woman to interrupt men as they are reclining at the table. And yet she does. And here she comes, anointing him. Mark says his head. John says his feet. I believe they're both right. She pours this entire thing all over her Savior. I love demonstrating the great love that she, with which she now loves and anoints him. And after this criticism that arises, John tells us from Judas, Jesus says in verse 6, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. And then Jesus is going to take this moment, an opportunity to teach why this is a beautiful thing. And he does this in three parts. So let's see these three parts. The first in verse 7. For you always have the poor with you, and wherever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Mark 14, 7 is one of the most controversial things that Jesus says. There's a lot of people that don't like that Jesus said this because they, they want Jesus uh, to, to be something that, that the gospels don't paint him. They want Jesus to only be about justice for the poor and justice for the marginalized. Now, don't hear me say that Jesus isn't for justice. He is certainly for justice. But Jesus praises Mary for her priorities because she has prioritized Jesus over wealth, and she has prioritized Jesus even over the poor. Now, hear me. We, we, uh, when you join our church, one of the things that you agree to is six core beliefs, uh, six core values, and six core competencies. And, and one of the, the, our core competencies are things that we say we're all going to work together to grow in. And the sixth one of those says that we're going to be faithful to care for and participate in meeting the tangible needs of those in our community and around the world. Because we believe the Bible instructs us as a congregation to care for the marginalized, to care for the poor, to care for the sick, to care for the wounded, to care for the widow, to care for the orphan. And to provide tangible needs, to feed them and to clothe them and to help them in any way that we can. And Jesus isn't contradicting the rest of the Bible. He's just prioritizing it. He's not telling us not to care for the poor. He's actually making a theological statement that only God can make. If so much of the Bible argues for the care of the poor and the care of the sick and the care of the widow and the orphan... It's only Jesus, the Son of God, that can make this statement. You know what statement he's making about Mary? He's making the statement that she understands the great commandment. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jay preached for us from Mark 12 on the great commandment. Let me just remind you. Remember someone's come to Jesus and is like, of all the commandments, what's the best one? And Jesus is like, oh, it's easy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Here's what Jesus says in a practical way about this woman as he anoints her to, to offset the criticism of a wicked heart. Jesus is like, she has the great commandment figured out because caring for the poor is loving your neighbor. And we should love our neighbor. 
Jesus isn't contradicting love your neighbor, but Jesus is saying more so than that, love God and sitting in your midst is God. Sitting here with you is God. He says, you will always have the poor and you can do good for them anytime you want to do good for them, but you will not always have me. I will not always be sitting here with you. So that's the first way that he commends her here. It's by saying she's got the great commandment figured out. Number two, he looks forward to his burial and he commends what she does as an anointing beforehand for his burial. Now, there's a lot of things Jesus could have said here, but didn't. For instance, he could have looked on his office as fulfilling the Old Testament office of priest and talked out of Exodus 29 about Aaron being anointed as the first priest of Israel. He could have talked about his office, about being the king and sitting on the throne of David forever and talked out of 1 Samuel 16 about David being anointed as king under that covenant with God because both were anointed offices that Jesus fulfills. Yet his eyes aren't on those offices in this moment. His eyes are on the sacrifice that will come at the end. His eyes are on the suffering that is but two days away. His eyes are on his death. And Mary, having taken not oil that is used to anoint a king, but perfume that is used to anoint dead bodies, pours it over Jesus, recognizing he, whether she fully did or not, Jesus makes sure the people in the room does. That he's going to his death and she has preemptively anointed him for burial. Number three, that the gospel, that gospel proclamation remembers the sacrifice and suffering of those who have followed Christ. He says in verse nine, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. We are talking about what this woman did today and generations of Christians have talked about this woman, to what she's done today because of the demonstration of love that flowed out of her redeemed heart reminds us of the proclamation of the gospel. And by the way, this is the only time in the gospel of Mark that Jesus uses the word gospel. It's the last time it'll show up in the gospel of Mark, but the only time it shows up spoken by Jesus. Tied to what? Tied to sacrifice? And suffering. And as we faithfully proclaim the gospel in our age, as faithful Christians have done throughout the church age, we are reminded of that sacrifice and suffering of this woman, and more important, the sacrifice and suffering of Jesus our Lord. So what? True love and adoration for Christ is evidence of a heart that has been changed by the gospel. Let's just work backwards here for a minute. Remember the sandwich, even with that piece of bread in the middle, hearts of treachery, hearts of greed, hearts that are seeking to, to keep power and control and authority, hearts that are following after the ruler of this world, hearts that don't understand who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. And this is the heart that we all begin life with. 
But those who have heard the gospel call, those who have responded in faith and repentance, their lives are then evidenced by the love and adoration that marks this woman's life. Now, I used this story a few weeks ago uh, in Mark chapter, in a sermon on Mark chapter 12. And so what I want to do is go back to Mark chapter 12 and use that story here in this one and make this connection for us. After Jesus has had all of those confrontations in the temple, he goes and sits down across from the treasury to remember this. And Mark 12 verse 41 tells us he sits down opposite the treasury and starts watching people put in money in the offering boxes. And many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor woman has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. In Mark 12, Jesus compares the hypocrisy of the scribes with the sacrifice of this poor widow woman putting in the two smallest coins that existed in the day. And now... Mark is comparing for us the treachery of the Sanhedrin and the treachery of Judas with a breaking open of a great wealth, a a year's worth of savings, penance, and great wealth. Hear me, church. It does not matter. It doesn't matter. You're not more or less important to the kingdom of God by how much you are able to sacrifice in love and adoration to him. There are people in this room that give great amounts of money to this church because God has financially blessed them in that way and they sacrifice to do so. And there are people in this room that aren't able to give a lot. And yet it is still great sacrifice to them. And their hearts are the same. Now the Bible tells us it's more difficult for that wealthy person Because with wealth comes often greed, with wealth comes distraction, with wealth comes the desire to kind of maintain certain things. But the hearts of true believers, as it relates to giving, and we can see both of these stories as giving, it's not about an amount, it's about a heart condition. What matters is the state of the heart that has been redeemed, that seeks to offer true love and adoration to Christ, trusting trusting that their gift is good, just as Jesus called both of those gifts good. So what would I encourage you to do today, church, in response to this? I would encourage you to examine your heart and ask this question, is there true love and adoration there for the Lord? Does your heart long for him? Does your heart sacrifice for him? This is both of these stories. Again, both of these women, great sacrifice. Does your heart, does the desire of your heart lead you to sacrifice for Christ above all else? Is there a longing in you for him or is your heart still treacherous? And you may not look at your heart and think it's treacherous, but any heart that is not dedicated towards Christ is a treacherous heart. So by way of help with the application, I'm going to read Psalm 63. This is a psalm of David crying out to the Lord in the wilderness, showing the heart of love and adoration that he had for the Lord. Here's what I want you to ask as I read this. I just want you to listen to it and ask, examining your own heart, do I have this kind of love and devotion for my Lord? David writes, oh God, 
You are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because of your steadfast, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my soul will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, let us, our hearts that are transformed by the gospel, demonstrate love and adoration and longing and contentment in Christ. Let us pour ourselves out for you. Show us, God, where we're still attached to this world, where we still love the wealth and privilege and authority and power that come with this world. Let us rid ourselves of all that entangle us. Dedicate ourselves to the love and adoration of the one who died for us. Let that be our cry, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family, would you stand with me as we respond?